Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Uh, my name is Josh Wilhite. I'm the director of men's equipping here at City Bridge, and uh, I'm excited to kind of have this standalone conversation between a whole series we did on worldview, how to look at the world through a biblical perspective, right? We looked at issue after issue after issue. Um, to stand between that series and the rest of this season moving up toward Resurrection Sunday and how we're going to be focusing on the resurrection of Christ. And so the message that the Lord has kind of given me to share with you is all about hope. If you've got your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to spend our morning. And so I wanted to talk with you about hope because it's a basic fundamental to biblical worldview if you want to look at the world the way God sees things. Uh, And it's what Easter and, and Resurrection Sunday is all about, is hope. Uh, And so the reason it came up for me when I was given this opportunity to share with y'all is because we've been in men's Bible study. That's one of the things I get to, to, the playgrounds I get to play in here at City Bridge is men's Bible study. We spent uh, the the fall and the spring semesters in first and second Peter. And I kind of had this seismic shift in my thinking as a result of that study. Personally, uh, it's like God brought together a bunch of things that he had been doing in my life for years uh, in, in first Peter chapter one around this issue of hope. And so I wanted to share that with you more this morning. Does that sound okay? All right. You with me? You got your Bibles open? Uh, anybody wondering what this is and why this dude is carrying this thing around? See, if you were from Michigan, where I'm from, or maybe from Canada, which Michigan borders with, it's like the Mexico of Texas. It's, up, it's the other way, right? Up there, we know what Canadian money looks like, right? And we know, you know, anyway. So I'm from Michigan originally. I moved here about five years ago, six years ago now. Um, and what you need to know about me is I grew up doing wilderness trips up in Algonquin Provincial Park in Ontario, Canada. It's about half the size of New Hampshire, and it's the greatest canoe tripping lo- uh, location on the planet, bar none. All right, and I, you're all like, canoes, what are canoes? I, I think I did that at camp once. Just go with me, okay? Just go with me on this, all right? Uh, but seriously, I spent probably a year of my life collectively in the wilderness uh, leading church groups through week-long wilderness canoe expeditions, all right? Just, I'll give you a second to simmer on. What, what did he just say? Yeah, uh, lots of time. My dad started this ministry called Pilgrimage, and we, that was what we did all summer, from middle school right up, right up through grad school. That was every summer. And so this is my canoe paddle. It's not an oar. It's a paddle. An oar is something you row backwards with. A paddle is something you paddle forward with, right? This is uh, what, um, what happens when you take American space-age technology and arrogance and the need for speed and you apply it to a Canadian beautiful art form of canoeing. All right, this is carbon fiber, about 11 ounces, right? Uh, This is a pretty sick piece of uh, technology right here. Uh, This means you can go fast and hard uh, with way less energy than the typical Canadian canoeer. I know you care. I know. (laughs) I feel the energy coming off of you. You're like, I want one. These aren't cheap, right? And uh, why do I tell you all about my super cool space age canoe paddle, right? It's bent for a reason. It's not broken, okay? It's technology. Uh, because this is what I was holding in my hand, and this is what I was using uh, when uh, God started this conversation with me about hope uh, quite a while back. And, it's, and, and, and I bring it to you because this is what I was holding, this is what was giving me blisters on a day when I thought that I was potentially rescuing my dad from death. I'm not exaggerating. I was on a wilderness trip, we were leading a group um, about 
most of the way through a week-long expedition, and my dad has this event uh, one evening. We had had dinner, we had had the campfire, we'd had dinner, and in the evening it becomes apparent that my dad's not okay. My dad's not okay. And uh, so my brother, who's also on the trip, we put our heads together and we decide he needs to be evacuated right now. Uh, it's, it's early evening, and, and this group has got easily a day, day and a half worth of travel before we can get out to the cars. And uh, what I find myself doing is stripping down my pack to the bare minimum with my friend Dwight and getting into a space-age technology canoe, which I would brag about, but you wouldn't care. Uh, but, and getting into this canoe uh, with my dad, 200-plus uh, pounds of dad, two stripped-down packs, me and Dwight, and we've got about a day and a half's worth of travel to do nonstop until we get there. Uh, and the sun's going to go down in like, I don't know, three hours. It was a big deal. It was a big moment. Uh, having Feeling like I had my dad's life in my hands in this paddle. And that's when God started a process in my life of exposing some things when it comes to hope. See, what happened was Dwight and I, we get going, and you just kind of get into go mode. Have you ever been in an emergency? Like a level 10 pain, level 10 emergency, uh, level 10 stress, suffering. Sometimes, if you're like me, you just go into go mode. You don't have time to think, and you get going. But the thing about canoe trips and canoe paddling is there's nothing to do except grind and think. Grind and think. Stroke after stroke after stroke and think. And my dad's sitting in front of me. I'm in the back of the canoe. Dwight's in the front. And hours on hours of grinding and thinking. And you know where my heart is going is I'm getting really frustrated. I'm scared. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And I'm grinding. Have you been there? So... We get to this point where I'm watching the sun go down, the finger trick. I know how many hours I have based on how many fingers between. Anybody? All right, cool. Some guys are like, totally, right? <laughs> I'm a wilderness guru, right? I'm, and I'm watching the sun go down. We get to this point where we are minutes from having to turn our headlamps on because it's about to get dirty dark. Uh, and things can get wild in the dark in the woods. You can get lost, and I'm getting more and more frustrated. And Dwight, my friend up front, who's further along in life than me, uh, I hear him say something. He says this out of the blue. He's like, man, big, you can hear the smile on his face. I can't see it because he's in the front. You can hear the smile on his face, grinding for hours. He's like, man, I'm just looking forward to what God does here. <laughs> and this is the paddle I wanted to hit him with. <laughs> He's like, I wonder how God's going to come through. And I had a moment where I was just extra dirty quiet. Have you ever been there suffering, frustrated, long time of grinding, hurting, and what's coming out of you is not pretty, and some dude walks in the room and it's like he's coming to a funeral with a party hat on? You ever been there? And he's like, wonder what God's going to do. That was my moment. Is it just me? Because that's what's supposed to happen in the room. You're supposed to come in with your suffering, right? With your difficult marriage, with your difficult children, with your cancer diagnosis. I'm not trying to be lighthearted here. You're supposed to come in the room, and I'm supposed to be that guy and tell you to buck up and smile, right? 
And this really can feel disingenuous. And that's what's so frustrating to me in 1 Peter when we open the book of 1 Peter in men's Bible study. And this is what I hear people at Peter say to people who are suffering. The audience of 1 Peter are people who are suffering. And what he says, the first words out of his mouth after the introduction is this. He says, he says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like he marches into our funeral with a party hat on. And I'm supposed to take that seriously. So what is Peter, what does he know that I don't know? What does Peter know that I don't know? Because either he's a loony fruit bat, like Dwight seemed to me, or he knows something that I don't know. And this is what God starts exposing to me years later in this study of 1 Peter. Are you interested in getting into it with me? Okay, good. Well, Peter knows some things that I don't know. He had some experiences that I haven't had before. And so here's what he's going to do in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. He's going to walk us through hope in our suffering, in our pain, in our trial, in our difficulty. This is what he knows that makes him happy in the middle of that genuinely. And he's going to do it in three moves. He's going to talk to us about a living hope. He's going to talk to us about a proven hope. And then he's going to talk to us about an active hope. Let's dive in. Verses, uh, we'll start in verse three. And we're gonna look at verse three through nine, but I'm gonna do it in three moves. So let's start with verses three through five. It says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Couple things you need to see here. Peter's talking to people who are desperately hurting. Christians who are getting chewed up hard for their faith. Families who are dealing with significant pain. And this is what he opens with. Do you wanna know what's interesting to me is what's missing? Peter doesn't mention the cross. He doesn't mention forgiveness. He doesn't mention gratitude. Did you see that? Peter's focus is not on the past of what God's done for us or on the present. Peter's focus is on the future. And it's not that the past isn't important. It's not that the cross isn't important. It's not that the finished work of Christ on the cross, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus for forgiveness of our sins, and for once and for all, at that moment, transitioned from death to life and had a future hope secured, right? There's no earning in Christ. He's assuming that. He's not talking about it. He's assuming it. He's not ignoring it because it's not important. The cross, forgiveness, security in Christ. I think he's assuming it. Because what a person who's suffering, what a Christian who's suffering needs to get is that the way to move through that is not to look backward. The way to look through that is to look forward. Let me help you see a couple things in the text to reinforce my point. One, all he talks about is the future. In the entire book of 1 Peter, if you really were to analyze it, literally 25% of the ink of the book of 1 Peter is future focused. There's almost no conversation about the cross, about forgiveness. And if you're like me, when you think about your faith, when you think about salvation, that's what you tend to think of, right? Being forgiven for my sin? Or is it just me? 
right? And what we do is rightly, right? The Bible instructs us to be grateful, to, be, to work on gratitude. Colossians 1 has a lot to say about that. It's not wrong to focus on gratitude for salvation. The point is when that's all you think of when you think of your salvation, security in Christ, and then hang on, hang on until eventually I get to heaven. That's a recipe for failing in the middle of your suffering, for grinding down, for the attitude that I had in that canoe, John Piper, a theologian, he calls this the debtor's ethic. The way we tend to try to motivate ourselves in our suffering is we try to be grateful. We try super hard to focus on the things that have been done for us and to live up to them. And that's not where Peter takes us. That's what's so jarring to me. He doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us to look back and be thankful. He tells us to look forward. It's, again, he's, it's not that we're not to be thankful, but he, where he points our focus is on future grace. John Piper says it this way. He says, when it comes to spelling out how practical Christian obedience happens, the Bible does not say that it comes from the backward gaze of gratitude, but that it comes from the forward gaze of faith. The only life I have left to live is future life, he says. The past is not in my hands to alter or offer, it's gone. Not even God will change the past. All the power that touches me with help to live in love is future power. As precious as the bygone blessings of God may be, if he leaves me only with the memory of those and not with the promise of more, I will be undone. Gratitude is critical, but it will not sustain you through your suffering. Future grace is what sustains us through our suffering. That's what Peter's saying. So that's why he focuses on the resurrection of Christ. Verse four, an inheritance, a future inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, won't fade away, reserved in heaven, this future experience. And he talks about a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you catch that? He's thinking of salvation as a future event in this passage. When I think of salvation, I think of a past event, Right? Peter's recognizing, hey, it's bigger than that. You are justified, meaning when you place your faith in Christ, you are saved once and for all, and you secure all of the future grace then. And then you move through a process in your salvation of growing to be like Jesus. That's called being sanctified. And that moves you closer and closer and opens you up more and more to what we call being glorified, which is the culmination and the finishing of your salvation. Am I making sense? I don't want to be confusing. We're not earning anything. We're not, we're not getting more than we already had. We own it. We're just experiencing it more and more and more. And what Peter's saying is in your suffering, where we tend to get lost, is that we fail to recognize that there's more and more and more and more of our salvation to experience and take in as we move forward. That's a brain, I don't know about you, that was a brain bender for me. Because I tend to try to work really hard to feel grateful for where I'm at, and I struggle with that. But what Peter's doing is he's drawing our focus forward. So the cross and forgiveness is only half the story. The resurrection and future grace is the other half. I have something to look forward to no matter how bad this gets. In Christ, there's always more. Okay, and that sounds great, but I can kind of see by your face and I can kind of relate. You're like, yeah, but this still really stinks. And so Peter, what he does next in this passage for me and for us is he shifts gears and says, okay, okay, future grace, that's critical. Let's talk about now. 
Let's talk about this suffering. Let me help you understand how your suffering is informed by future grace. How your current situation changes if you understand what's really going on in light of what is coming to you ultimately in Christ. And so he goes to verse six. He says, in this, in your suffering, you greatly rejoice. That seems like an arrogant thing to say. Again, what does he know that I don't know? He says, in, your, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he saying here? He's using fire imagery, and he says the word proof of your faith. When you hear proof of your faith, what do you think? First read for me, it was, I have to live up to, I have to prove that I have faith. Anybody relate to that reading? That's not what he's saying. In the original language, that word proof, what he's doing here is he's using an imagery of uh, refining gold. And uh, how many of you have any gold on you? You're not willing to admit it, right? Like, oh, right? I used to, and then I got fatter and outgrew my ring. And now it's just silicone, but I have it at home. And uh, in order to get that gold you know, that you're wearing or that I used to wear, what they did was they pulled material out of the ground that they knew had gold in it, but that gold was mixed with a lot of other junk, with waste material, right? And so how do you get the gold out? How do you, make the, how do you refine that gold to make it something you'd make into something beautiful and useful? Well, what you do is you get a crucible. I think we have an image of a crucible here. And it's a container that can handle the heat. And what you do is you heat this crucible up intensely and you take that material that has gold in it and you put it in the crucible. Then it gets so hot that it, that it melts the whole thing. The gold and all the material in it, it gets so intensely hot that it melts it all. And here's what happens is in that process of refining, the gold is revealed and refined. What happens is that gold melts and goes down to the bottom and the waste material melts and rises to the top. They separate. And the refiner, what he's going to do is he's going to take a tool and he's going to scrape the waste material off the top of that gold. And he's going to keep doing that over and over and over again until that waste material is gone entirely or as much of it as he wants to get out, he gets out. And the gold becomes more and more pure, more and more itself, more and more whole, more and more perfect, more and more complete, more and more what it's made to be. Only in this case, Peter's saying it's not gold that's being refined in your suffering, it's your faith. Stick with me on this, because I know some, some of us, I'm like, but you don't understand the intensity of my suffering. And I'm saying, no, I don't, but God does. And this is what God is saying to you and to me. He's saying your suffering is not without purpose, not without value, and, and it's not without the love of God doing something significant in your life through it. So there's two things that this refining of your faith is doing, he's saying. You're, it's, re, it's revealing and it's refining. So I'm paddling with Dwight and I'm getting more and more ground down and more and more frustrated more and more angry, and, it's, and I'm getting more and more honest about that. I don't know about you, but you ever been hangry, right? What's happening is your fatigue and your hunger is allowing the real you to come out a little bit more. That filter between you and the world's getting thinner and thinner and thinner. You've been there? Kids have done that, right? Kids, you've seen that with your parents, right? You've been there with your parents. Your ability to obey gets thinner and thinner and thinner as you get more and more tired. You've been there? Come on, you know it's not just me. 
And that's what's happening to me. I'm grinding and I'm grinding. Every stroke, I'm getting more and more tired and more and more thin and what's coming out and I'm having such a hard time. What's coming out is dirty and gross and I don't want to talk about it. And honestly, I'm ashamed to say it to you right now. The things I want to say if God actually showed up right in front of me are not pretty. So what's happening is in the pressure, because of that pressure, see all along, I would console myself and say that God and I are great. We have a great relationship. I'm leading a trip of church leaders through the wilderness and helping them deal with their stuff because I'm, I'm fine, the Christian F word. I'm fine. We're all fine. Everything's fine. Can I say that? Okay. All right. We're all fine. No, we're not. But you would think that you are. You came in here thinking that you were. Some of you knew better, but some of you came in here thinking that you were. But all you need is some heat. All you need is some pain. All you need is some refining from a loving God who's not willing to let you believe the lie that you're fine. Because you're not. And I'm not. Because there's waste material inside of us. That's the sanctification piece of salvation. That will not come out until the heat comes. And that's the moment in the crucible when I see it, that I have an opportunity to make it worth something, to make my suffering worth something, and to join with the Lord in the refining. See, he reveals, and then I have a, the question is, will I join with him in refining and scraping the waste material off and trying something different? accepting that I need God to do something in my heart and I want to participate with him in trying something different. That's what suffering is for, is that's what Peter's saying to us. The proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that's what is happening in our suffering. Am I making sense? So grateful for people who will nod. Even if it doesn't make sense and you're just saying it does, thank you for that. Thank you. So... So, so our, suffering, our, our, our suffering reveals and our refines and, and it helps us to see where we're really at. You know, it was interesting on the lake as I'm paddling and I'm, what's coming out of me is really gross. What came out of Dwight was something totally different. And if you knew him then, if you know him now, you would know immediately that it was totally authentic. It wasn't fake. Because I've been there where I'm trying to tell myself the truth, the fake plastic smile and trying to conjure but you've been around people like Eddie, where it's real, and you know what that's like? That's Dwight. And you know how Dwight got the way he got so that on that lake we're both having the same experience because he and my, bad, my dad were really, really, are really good friends. So we're both having the same experience and we're both getting squeezed really hard, but what's coming out is two totally different things. You know how Dwight had a totally different view where you could hear his smile. If you knew him, what you would know is that he has had a ton of experience with suffering. When he was younger, his brother, it turns out, had leukemia long before a lot of the technology that's here today. And so his whole family had to live through and walk through this extended period of depending on the Lord through, the, through a deadly disease with his brother. And so as a young kid, he's working through suffering and he's being refined and he's learning as what's revealed, the fear and anxiety comes out and he works with God to refine that. He might also tell you about his, his daughter, Annie, who, who died and he would walk that through. Maybe he'd talk to you about the time he was a youth camp worker and he had a kid drown uh, on his watch and he had to work through that in high school. And he, and he could tell you, and you could step back and say, wow, what a terrible God that would allow those things to happen until you see the refined Dwight in that canoe with me. 
And you could see a man who worked through the revealing and the refining and who genuinely had joy, not the fake stuff, which is why we move to verse 10 to 12, I'm sorry, verses eight and nine. And it's not so shocking when he says what he says in verses eight and nine. He says, and though you have not seen him, him being Jesus, you love him. And though you don't see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This suddenly makes sense when you get around a Dwight or a Peter and those guys who do actually know something that I didn't know, who had allowed their suffering to not be registered to an indifferent wrathful, mean God, but who had instead heard God speak about his love for people and how he loves us so much he's not willing to let us stay as small and godless as we naturally are. And he's willing to let us go through sufferings and to walk with us through sufferings, even the intense stuff, to reveal and refine. And the end result of that is Joy, and let me ask you a question, inexpressible joy, when's the last time you were so happy you didn't have words for it? When's the last time you were so happy you didn't have words for it? See, Peter talks about that like it's possible, probable, normal, for people who will move through a refining process, even in their suffering. Not some weird eyes roll back, drank the Kool-Aid, trying really hard to act happy kind of joy, like genuinely in the pain, not necessarily smiling, not failing to cry, but having an inexpressible joy. And, And it's rooted in a vision of Jesus. Though you don't see him, you trust him. Though you're not able to see him with your eyes, you love him. That kind of relationship with Christ, that kind of belief and trust that God is not letting anything happen to me that isn't somehow useful, that doesn't somehow lead to joy, that kind of faith is what Peter understood that I didn't understand, and that's rooted in future grace. You want to know the difference, by the way, between the Peter who couldn't stand up to a little slave girl in John chapter 19, 18 and 19, when, she, when, when he denied Christ. He was afraid of suffering then. You know the difference between that Peter and the Peter who by the end of his life tradition says was opted to be crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified the same way as his Lord. The difference, you know what happened in between? Peter witnessed the resurrection of Christ. Jesus proved that hope, it can be grounded, that our present pain can be contextualized by future glory because God loves us. He's gonna turn our pain into glory. So let's let's go to verses verses 10 to 12 and see why he pivots now to a proven hope. Okay, says this. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. There's a phrase to hang on to, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you. 
by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Jesus proves this process of, of suffering paying off in future glory. In the book of uh, Hebrews, it talks about Jesus being the author and perfecter of our faith. In Hebrews, it talks about how he bushwhacked, he proves the trail. He moved through his own suffering in life and he suffered in life and he moved through the suffering of giving his life for us for the joy set before him, the scripture says. He didn't look back, he looked forward at what was gonna come as a result because a loving God takes our suffering, uses it to transform us, help us to experience more and more of him until ultimately we get it all. Jesus proves the process. And, for the, and he gives a little apologetic flourish too for the guy in the room who is like, okay, that sounds great. Religious crutch, all of that. He's like, actually, this is proven. 600 years before Christ was born, this prophet said this, Isaiah predicted that Christ would suffer for future glory. Isaiah 53, five, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him and by his scourging, we are healed. This isn't a religious fancy. This is a historical fact. Jesus suffered for future glory. He suffered for our future glory. And that informs and secures the fact that I have glory coming, no matter what happens. And that glory informs the way that I view my current suffering. So what do I do with that? Verses 13 to 16, Peter's like, okay, you want to know how a believer perseveres through pain? Let me just give you some how. In light of the future glory, in light of the fact that we have a fixed future hope, that there's more and more grace to come, he's going to tell us two things, and this is mind-bending for me. Here's two things to do. Up to this point, there haven't been any commands. There's been no instructions. It's all been how to think. And now he's going to tell us what to do. Verse 13, therefore, as a result of all this, prepare your minds for action, preparing your minds for action, keeping sober in spirit. Here's the command. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope completely on future grace. Fix your hope on that. Girding up your, the loins of your mind is the awkward original language way of saying that, right? You don't show up in flip-flops, you show up in running shoes, right, when it comes to suffering. Girding up the loins of your mind, you fix your hope completely on the future. You, and what that means is you're tearing your focus off of how it seems like God's failing me right now. You're tearing your focus off of the past. You're tearing your focus off of all the things that I tend to put my hope in or the fact that I've lost hope. You're tearing your focus off of that and you're putting your focus on future grace, on the fact that God has proven and said that he will ultimately make this suffering pay off if we will just lean into the refining process we can see benefit through it. So we fix our hope on future grace. And then the second command is this. He goes on to verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Don't get sucked into the things we tend to put our hope in. Don't get sucked into medicating, being distracted, or depending on your ability to paddle a canoe. Don't get sucked into that. He said, instead... But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And when you read that, it seems really underwhelming, doesn't it? Wait, this is what I'm supposed to do. Work hard at focusing on future grace and be holy? 
I'm thinking of the mom who just has no bandwidth because her kids are just insane. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the foster parents who are getting way more than they bargained for when it comes to the complexity of working with child services. I'm thinking of the dude who walked in here and has been listening to me prate on and on and on about hope when he just got a cancer diagnosis. That's what you're telling me, Peter? And Peter doesn't back down. He says, yes, that's what I'm telling you, but let me explain what I think he's saying here. Be holy as I am holy. What that sounds like to me at first read is work harder. You know that bandwidth you don't have? Find some, is what it sounds like he's saying. I don't think that's what he's saying. What does holy mean? What does it mean to be holy? There's a theologian in the crowd. What they'd do is they'd raise their hands and say, well, holy means set apart. Uh, it's a word all through the Old Testament that God uses to describe how different he is than the world and how we're called to be different than the world. And that's true. Holy means set apart. But fundamentally what it means is, is to be godlike. God is set apart because he's different than his creation. He's independent from his creation. He thinks, he feels, he moves through things completely differently in a way that seems totally counterintuitive to us. We would do things one way. Scripture says that there's a way that seems right to man, right? That's different than the way God would do it. God is holy in the fact that he's different in every regard. And in some way, I think on some level, what this is, is him saying, hey, be the way I would be. In your suffering, be holy. Do what I would do. What if, guys, holiness, the command to be holy, is not an obligation for a Christian? Stick with me. What if it's not something to live up to for a Christian who's going to get it all at some point anyway? What if holiness, what if this, uh, this command, be holy as I'm holy, is actually not an obligation, but an invitation? What if this statement, be holy as I'm holy, is a declaration of something that is inevitable for you? What if the future hope of being with Christ and being like Christ that's guaranteed is really just a matter of experiencing holiness for the first time in all of its fullness, inexpressible joy? <laughs> what if when God says, be holy as I'm holy to a Christian, he's inviting you to experience more of what's coming now. Am I making sense? That was a brain bender for me. And so when Peter says, fix your hope and be holy as I am holy, on some level, I think for the New Testament believer, what he's saying is not work harder, work harder, find bandwidth you don't have. I think what he's saying is wake up and realize that this refining process is designed to invite you and expose you to more and more of the way God sees things, the way he feels about things, the way he moves through the world, and you can participate. Listen, we have all of the heaven we'll ever need guaranteed to us, and we can have as much of it as we can handle right now. You're just looking at me. Does that make sense? Like, that's incredible. I don't have to wait. I can have as much as I can handle right now if I would just lean in and pursue holiness, try the crazy thing. And so if I'm summarizing what Peter's telling us to do in this passage, the Duke commands, fix your hope on Christ and be holy. I think it's basically work really hard on focusing on future grace and believing it in the moment, believing that God loves you 
and loving him back in the moment of your pain and then do something crazy. Be holy as I am holy. I think he's saying do something Christ-like that's crazy. Because I think being holy means being different. And how's it going being the way you are? In your suffering, how's it going doing things the way you've always done them? How's that going for you? Fundamentally, what, Peter, what I think Peter's telling me and what he's telling you is in that pain, what if you believed for one second that it's an avenue to more of what's coming? What if I fixed my hope on future grace, the presence of a real loving God, and what if I tried something different that Christ commands me to do? What does that look like? Well, for me, <laughs> it looks like um, that moment when I realized that my wife and I have had 20 years of marriage and have communication issues we just have not been able to figure out. And when I realized that I had kind of given up hope on figuring them out and figured we just need to deal with it, that's what godly people do, right? And so we deal with it and we deal with it and we deal with it. What if fixing my hope on future grace says, you know what, maybe in Christ there's another way. Maybe that's scary, but maybe there's something else I can do. And so maybe I do the crazy Christ-like thing and I confess my problem to my community group. And when they say, hey, guess what? You should try re-engage. And I say, I don't have time for that. I don't have bandwidth for that. That's crazy. They say, uh-huh, crazy. Sounds a little bit like doing something different. And so what if in the middle of seminary and uh, in the middle of a full-time job and in the middle of a lot of other things, we find a way to make re-engage work? And what if months later, Gwen and I are not dealing with the same communication issues anymore? Am I making sense? Student, you feel alone, you feel lonely in the lunchroom. You're walking around, you don't know what to do with that and you're suffering and you're struggling, you're feeling isolated, nobody understands you. And what if, what if you fixed your hope on the fact that a living God actually loves you and is with you? And what if you believe for one second that there's actually more coming? One, that you're secure forever, but two, that like maybe this can change. But what if the crazy thing isn't just sitting there waiting for someone to sit next to you at lunch? What if the crazy thing is to find the most oddball kid who's the more lonely than you and lean into them and go sit down next to them and ask them about their day? What if the Christ-like crazy thing of being holy like Jesus is holy is doing the Jesus thing that you, don't, you never would have thought of doing? Am I making sense, students? So, I'll finish my story. Dwight and I. He says that, has that moment, I want to hit him. And you know what happened? I'm paddling with my head down. I'm paddling with my head down and I'm grinding and I'm struggling. And Dwight is paddling with his head up. It gets dark. We turn our headlamps on. We're grinding. We come around to bend not 30 minutes after he made that obnoxious comment. And we see a light. We're easily two to three hours of grinding from our car. And I'm, I'm tapped out. And we see a very bright light that should not be there. See, it's the off season. But it turns out, as we went past a little camping resort, I know that's a, that's a contradiction in terms for a lot of us, but this little resort that we knew was there, but it's the off season, there's nobody there, there's a light on. Which, parenthetically, we wouldn't have seen if it wasn't dark, by the way. And uh, Dwight's like, we should pull over. This is probably what God's going to do. 
I'm like, Dwight, that's easily like an extra 10 minutes of paddling that way across the lake and then a 10 minutes of paddling when we find that there's no one there. And he's like, bro, have a little faith. And I'm like, I don't want to have a little faith. I want to continue to grind and do what I do. I want to continue putting my hope in my own energy. He prevails on me. We pull up to the dock 10 minutes of grinding later. It's pitch black. I don't see anything except for that light at the top of the building. I'm not even getting out of the canoe. Dwight pops out of the canoe, runs up, and guess what he finds? He finds the caretaker of that property fixing to leave not a few minutes later for the season, whose car has already started and who offers to give us a ride. We get my dad to the hospital, and it works out, and we sleep in a hotel that night. Here's not what I'm telling you. That if you have a little hope, God's going to come through the way you want him to. I'm not telling you that. What I am telling you is that hope that brings joy is hope that paddles with its head up, fixes its hope. People who have joy in suffering or people who paddle with their heads up, fix their hope on future grace and try something crazy, like in that case, going to the dock. For you, I don't know what it is. But that's the question I want to close with. What's your, what's your hope fixed on? Now you paddle with your head up or your head down. And what's the crazy thing God might call you to do if you really believed that he was good and had good things in store for you? Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at CityBridgeCC. See you next time.